Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Zizhu, Dr. Garris Fisher, and Dr. Andre Laliberte about their new edit volume, Buddhism After Mao, Negotiations, Continuities, and Reinventions, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2019. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Great. Um, I wonder if we could maybe start off the interview with some self-introductions. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you became interested in Buddhism in modern and contemporary China. Maybe we can start with um, Dr. Ji, please. Okay, thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Ji Zhe. I am a professor of sociology at Inatgo, uh, the French National Institute on Oriental Languages and Civilizations. I'm also the director of CEIB, the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies on Buddhism in Paris. My research focus is uh, Buddhism and the relationship between religion and politics in modern and contemporary China. I was born in China, and I have lived in France for more than 20 years. I am interested in Buddhism because I see this religion as one of the most important social phenomena that helps us to better understand the ongoing moral and social changes in China. You know, Buddhism has a very long history in China, about 2,000 years, and today around 10% of the total Chinese adult population of about um, 100 million people identify themselves as Buddhist. If we count all Chinese who are more or less receptive to uh, Buddhist cosmology and occasionally participate in festivals and rituals of Buddhism, the number rises to between 200 and 300 million people. Since the end of the 19th century, Chinese Buddhism has experienced a very rich and complex process of transformation. There have been crises and setbacks, but also new forms of adaptations and um, exploration. In the course of my studies, I have found that Buddhism is an excellent field from which uh, to uh, diagnose the source of some of the deep tensions that Chinese society has experienced during the last hundred years, including the tensions between culture and politics, between morality and economy, between self and public, or more in general, between tradition and modernity. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and also for the useful statistics as well. Um, and maybe we can go to um, Dr. Fisher. Sure. Um, uh, I teach at Syracuse U- University in the United States. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Religion, and I also have a courtesy appointment in the Department of Anthropology, where I earn my which is the degree that, that I earned for my PhD. 
Um, I do research on lay Buddhist revival in contemporary China. Um, I'm also doing a project on the revival of temples and how the rebuilding of Buddhist temples um, intersects with society and economy and politics uh, in contemporary China. I first started looking at this topic in 1993 when I was a college student at Grinnell College in Iowa. And I took my first trip to China and I saw this incredible energy that was going into the rebuilding of temples. And I came back and realized that no other scholar was really studying this. And so I really made it my purpose to learn Chinese, go to graduate school, and after many years of study, uh, begin to take on this topic myself. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Laliberte, please uh, introduce yourself. Yes. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm professor in comparative politics at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Um, I did my PhD dissertation on the political behavior of Buddhist organizations in Taiwan in 1999. So I have a, a long interest in the study of religion in politics or religion and politics. So I'm interested since the beginning in the relationship between governments and religions. And like my colleague, uh, I, I really think that uh, Buddhism has not been studied enough from the angle, that is, of political science. Uh, over the years, every time I read uh, very often in political science studies on uh, the politics of religion or the religions and state relation, very often that was more narrowly within the framework of Christianity. Um, so I felt there's a need really to look at how does uh, Buddhism relate to the government in Chinese societies? So, of course, in 1992, uh, I, I traveled for the first time in China. Like my colleague, I was impressed by the uh, extraordinary change happening in that country. And over the years, in traveling to both China and Taiwan, and get a sense of uh, the differences between the two societies, but also the vitality of Buddhism uh, as uh, very often an important actor in the relationship between the two uh, societies. Um, and last word, I'm really grateful for uh, the uh, invitation that Dija extended to me uh, in that uh, fantastic project. And of course, I'm also grateful for uh, the support and cooperation that I have uh, with both Dija and Garrett over the years. Thank you. Um, yeah, definitely. I think uh, Buddhism um, needs to be discussed probably more from the political science angle. I definitely um, echo you on that. Um, so this book, um, Edited Volume, actually brings a really diverse group of scholars right, into this, this conversation. So before we actually go into the chapters, um, can you please tell us a little bit about how this project started? Uh, what brought all of these scholars together to write about Buddhism after Mao? Yes, uh, as my colleague and friend Andrea has just mentioned, this volume is a result of a very long-term collaboration between we three and other colleagues. Over the last 10 years, we have worked together in the field to uh, collect uh, data, uh, to get edited special issues, and uh, 
organized workshops. In 2015, thanks to funding by the city of Paris through its uh, emergencies program, which is a program that supports uh, grounding breaking, uh, gr sorry, groundbreaking research of young scholars and new teams. We held a conference in Paris at my institution in Argo. So Buddhism After Mao is the outcome of this conference. In the volume, we share a common research goal, which is to uh, explore how Buddhism has been, at the same time, reinvented and uh, perpetuated uh, in the particular political, religious, and social context of post-Mao China. We choose the title Buddhism After Mao in order to uh, pay homage to Holmes Welch, an American sociologist of the 20th century who authored uh, many important studies on Chinese Buddhism, in particular the book Buddhism Under Mao in 1972. Due to our combined inspiration and uh, ambition to continue Holmes Welch's work, we gathered to um, investigate the complex evolution of Buddhism over the nearly uh, 40 years since the end of, of the Cultural Revolution to the present day. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. So to address the question of Buddhist religiosity in post-Mao China, the volume um, actually proposes to build on Adam Yue Chao's model of the five modalities of doing religion. And this is stated in the introduction of the book. Um, so can you please tell us more about this framework? Um, how would it help us to understand Buddhist religiosity in contemporary China? Yes, we appreciate very much Adam Yuchuk's contribution to understanding the Chinese approach to uh, uh, doing religion. He suggested that there are actually five modalities of doing religion that people adopt and combine to uh, deal with the various concerns and challenges they face in daily life. The first is a um, uh, discursive uh, modality involving mostly the composition and use of text. The second is a personal cultivational modality, and it involves um, uh, the long-term practice of self-cultivation, uh, which is a key method uh, advocated by Chinese religions. The third is called uh, liturgical modality, whereby people made use of con uh, complex procedures uh, conducted by religious priests. It could be Buddhist or Taoist priests. In the next immediate, immediate practical modality, people aim for quick results using simple ritual or magical techniques. The fifth and the last one is relational modality, uh, which focuses on the relationship between humans, deities, ghosts, and ancestors, as well as among people in families and in communities, emphasizing the social benefits of participation in large-scale uh, religious festivals. So this approach is very interesting for us because uh, on the one hand, it provides a uh, a uh, third way to understand religion beyond uh, substantive and functionalist views. On the other hand, it also provides a perspective according to which religious landscape uh, derives from competition among these modalities. As long as we focus on the 
practical characteristics of Buddhism, Kadam Yuchul's approach will remain one of our departure points. Um, to deal with the limitations of his model, however, we uh, presented further analysis and arguments in the introduction. First, it seems that Adam Mitchell's concept of doing religion uh, suffers from the problem of methodological individualism. We do not, we do not uh, think that uh, the subject of who is doing religion should be limited to the believer or the performer of rituals. In fact, religion is also a collective act. It can be anonymous and it has a multiplicity of resources. For example, political forces, market forces, and various social groups are involved, all involved in contributing to the production of the religion. Second, the secular and the religious are mutually constructed. Actors with secular motivations and means may consciously or not do religion. As we have observed in China, the PRC government has intervened in Buddhist affairs for political reasons, such as to uh, influence reunification with Taiwan. Entrepreneurs contribute to the building of monasteries in order to profit from the resulting uh, tourist growth. Therefore, in our volume, we did not simply uh, apply the doing religion mo model uh, or uh, pro propose one of the modalities in explanation. Perhaps it is more suitable for us to say that the subject of our volume concerns the specific mode of religious production in post-Mao China. The mode of religious production in post-Mao China. It concerns it, uh, some uh, details on the uh, interactions among many actors as well as their resources. These actors include individuals and collective agencies who could be both uh, religious and secular. Their resources include various symbolic and material capital and other means. In our volume, we explore the multidimensional and multi-level relations among these actors, including the relations between monastery and the state, between uh, clergy and uh, laity, between master and the disciple, between expert and practitioner, between different networks of Buddhism, and between Buddhists and non-Buddhists. Um, I can just add a couple of things. I, I think we wanted to avoid the language of both revival and corruption which has been often discussed in relation to religion in post-Mao China, more in general. Um, and uh, at, uh, Adam Chow's framework allows us to do that uh, with, with our modifications as uh, Dr. G discussed. So there's often the idea that either Buddhism is sort of coming back and just reproducing institutions and practices from the past, or that the um, revival is purely superficial and that it represents a kind of corrupted form of the past. And both of those ideas are 
flawed in, in particular ways. Um, and the flaw comes from looking at Buddhism as a kind of contiguous tradition that goes back to the Buddha in India, whereas in reality, Buddhism has constantly been changing throughout the world uh, and throughout Asia and throughout Chinese history in response to economic, social, and cultural changes. So while the attempt to really eradicate religion uh, in the Maoist period, or certainly later on in the Maoist period, has been one of the most pr profound um, changes to Buddhism in Chinese history, it's not the only one. And this is just uh, another stage in Buddhism's evolution. Yeah, I agree with my colleagues here. Um, and I really appreciate uh, the fact that uh, we, we agreed on the theoretical framework of our colleague uh, Adam Chow, because it allows us to really uh, do a portrait of contemporary Buddhism that is multidimensional um, and that really capture the complexity and the diversity of this uh, living uh, tradition that is really uh, not only responding to the current political social change, but also that has its own internal dynamic. So I think uh, that the, the great um, achievement, I think, of, of, of the book is to have brought together people from very different disciplines, people who have focused on different aspects of uh, living Buddhism uh, today. And, and I agree, again, with, with Garrett's statement that it's not really so much a revival because it, it's not, it, it has little to do with what um, happened before 1949. There are significant differences, significant differences that are caused by the extraordinary changes that China is experiencing. Um, and we have to be careful. And, and here I'm talking more about uh, the people who are going to study Buddhism from the outside. Um, the, um, you know, the, the people who are promoting the image of uh, Buddhism in China, and I'm talking about the Buddhist leadership itself, but also the government, which is intervening uh, more intensively in recent years and promoting Buddhism abroad, uh, there's a sense of calls to an immemorial tradition. And really in this book, what we want to make clear is that we have to deconstruct this idea because Buddhism today is something very different. Yeah, thank you for your additional comments. Yes, this edit volume uh, definitely brings a lot of these diverse perspectives of looking at um, recent changes uh, in Buddhism in China. Um, so the edit volume is divided into three major parts, um, covering um, three different issues of negotiation, continuity, and reinventions. Um, so the first part is entitled Negotiating Legitimacy, Making Buddhism with the State. And, and this part reveals how Buddhist institutions and religious agents in contemporary China have negotiated with state entities through dynamic processes since the 1980s. So here, um, Dr. Andrew Laliberte opens the discussion with his chapter um, entitled Buddhism under Jiang Hu Wanxi, the politics of incorporation, to give us an overview of how the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party 
and organized Buddhism have developed in the post-Mao period. Um, so here in this chapter, you're arguing that the relationship between the two is perhaps rather more cooperative than adversarial. Um, so the question that many of our listeners might be curious about is, so why would the CCP and the PRC, um, an officially atheist party and state, not oppose Buddhism and its recent expansions in China? Well, this is a good question. And uh, I, I think it's important also to bring to the fore that in our book, I, we haven't mentioned that so far, but in, in our book, we do um, emphasize that we're looking at Chinese Buddhism, not Buddhism in China. Because if we had decided to work at Buddhism in China, we could not escape having to say something about uh, the way Buddhism is practiced among Tibetans, Mongols, and a few uh, Chinese also who follow the rites of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. So we deliberately uh, chose to not look into this particular form of uh, Buddhist practice in China. And there are many reasons for that. There is a reason, first, we wanted to really emphasize the tradition of Chinese Buddhism as it evolved and also as it is seen by the current regime as actually uh, an element in its apparatus of soft power. Um, we cannot um, underestimate the importance that the Communist Party is now attaching to uh, its place in world affairs, and certainly the appeal to the, you know, the call for a, a socialist revolution is really something that is gone. Uh, since Deng Xiaoping started the policy of uh, economic reform and opening, uh, China has been struggling. Well, actually, not China so much as the Communist Party has been struggling uh, with uh, a new uh, ground for its legitimacy. Um, and of course, you can well imagine that at the beginning, it was out of the question that religion would be a component of the Communist Party's legitimacy. After all, so many people have been persecuted, uh, suffered because of uh, their religious practice, their religious belief. Um, so it, it was kind of a, a stretch to imagine that overnight, as China does uh, its policy of economic reform, there would be a rehabilitation of religion. But what is really remarkable, and it started with Jiang Zemin, when you have the first beginning of an indice that, uh, well, religion is becoming, is considered compatible with socialism. So you've seen that then with Hu Jintao. Hu Jintao is starting with you know, his, his mandate with this idea of uh, China is really looking forward to develop a harmonious society. And people who know about uh, Chinese high culture know that that's a reference to Confucianism. And throughout the mandate of uh, Jiang and Hu, what we've seen is really an encouragement at the center, uh, an encouragement to, if you like, the cultural revival of China. And of course, that revival meant also uh, greater emphasis on rebuilding temples, on, on celebrating the heritage of Chinese traditional culture. Um, and increasingly, you've seen among Chinese scholars and among, of course, cadre in the Communist Party, a recognition that religion is an important part of its uh, cultural heritage. But of course, there's a twist to that. Uh, 
religion, especially religions that have very close connection with the outside world, like Christianity, have been considered from the beginning by the Communist Party as a problem. Islam, as you're aware, uh, is considered also problematic because of its link to ethnicity. But Buddhism, uh, especially Chinese Buddhism, is considered really a core component of Chinese culture. So therefore, uh, for the Communist Party, this is presenting a lower risk for its legitimacy to promote Buddhism as a you know part of uh, its um, glorious tradition that um, Xi Jinping wants to promote. Now, I want to add, and that's something I elaborate at some length in my chapter, um, of course, what the central government decides is sometimes not always implemented equally across the country. Uh, although China has different provinces, it's not a federal government for sure. It's a government, a centralized government, which uh, really seeks every province and region and municipalities to implement policies determined at the center. But um, clearly, sometimes provincial governments have a lack of capacity, they have their own uh, religious ecology, and so they might be reluctant to implement some of the policies of the central government. But there's also another dynamic that happens. Um, some local governments who, for example, would have a larger proportion of the population which identifies as Buddhist or profess to be Buddhist, uh, would have networks that uh, would actually push for even greater representation or greater uh, affirmation of uh, Buddhism in, in the local society. So dynamics that varies across the country, um, but nevertheless, the, the signal at the center is that Buddhism is considered as uh, is considered by the Communist Party as a tradition that the regime really wants to support because it's not considered problematic. And as uh, Gija mentioned earlier, there's also a strategic um, uh, goal in there, in that, uh, if you like, encouragement, official encouragement of Buddhism, actually two strategic goals. One which is that Buddhism is very popular in Taiwan. It's about 30% of the population, according to surveys, would say that they are affiliated or that they profess to be Buddhism in some way. So... The Communist Party's United Frontward Department look at uh, Buddhism as, in Taiwan as some sort of a natural uh, source of support and political agreement with with China. So uh, that's that's uh, the first thing. The other thing is, of course, uh, the promotion, and that that we've seen that uh, abroad. Uh, the, the three of us actually have been personally uh, meeting with uh, monastics coming from China to Canada, to, to Europe, and to, uh, to the United States, um, that were interested in promoting the image of Buddhism and Chinese Buddhism. Um, so there's an effort to show that China today is really a country that really is promoting a modern, uh, an image of religion that is positive. This is to deflect, of course, the critique that is quite widespread in Western countries, and rightly so, I have to say, about persecution against religious minorities. So this is part of a, a broader dialogue.
Yeah, thank you for that really comprehensive answer. Um, and, and the other chapters of this part um, explores more right, this relationship between government agencies and, and Buddhist uh, community and so also Buddhist leaders. For example, in Claire Vidal's chapter on Putoshan, um, here she also explores how government agencies work with Buddhist leaders to develop religion and the economy together. Um, however, uh, Brian Nichols' chapter on the Kaiyuan Temple in Fujian is arguing that there is also friction between secular authorities and monastic leaders. Um, so what are the factors that determine the kinds of relationship that Buddhism would have with the state? And why would some of these relationships be more collaborative um, on the one hand and then others more contentious? Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because it would require so much research. I mean, it's difficult to provide a comprehensive you know, answer to that question. I think that uh, the chapters by uh, Claire Vidal and uh, Brian McNichols, they really provide two snapshots and they are very, very important, I think, because they kind of uh, set up the different possibilities of relations between local Buddhist temples, lay people, and the central government or the provincial government, because sometimes these relations are not necessarily uh, mediated directly with the central government or, or actually the National Buddhist Association of China. Uh, sometimes they are mediated through the county level Buddhist association or the provincial level association. So the modalities varied according to the province, depending on the strength of the different uh, Buddhist organizations. Um, so certainly in the case of uh, Claire, uh, her chapter is really describing one of the first, one of the four Buddhist mountains, which is really important for the economy of Zhejiang, because that's uh, a tourist site, which is really important for the economy of that province. Of course, Zhejiang is a wealthy province. It has many other sources of wealth, but nevertheless, it's an important component. So, of course, it's important that uh, the relationship between the local authorities, but also the business sector, and you know, different actors have vested interest in the prosperity of Buddhism. Um, but in more impoverished part of the country, sometimes that relationship is a little bit more complicated. Uh, you can see, uh, for example, in the province of Xianxi in the northwest of China, a country that depends on coal for its economy. Uh, a, uh, a province where the standards of living are much lower than in, province, in a province like Zhejiang. Um, in that case, you have ambiguities. You, you do have the site of Fu Taishan, which is another one of the uh, four uh, great mountains of Buddhism in China. Um, and it's also a very important tourist site. However, uh, it's not clear that the provincial authorities are as enthusiastic about the development of uh, that site in particular because of the uh, other priorities that the Shanxi uh, provincial government would have. So in other words, the variety of uh, local conditions would explain why is it that governments would have different attitudes towards the different uh, Buddhist uh, temple and organizations. 
Thank you. Yeah, and indeed, it's very um, complicated, right? It, it really depends on what level of, of governance is involved as well. And chapter three um, of part one, which is written by Susan McCarthy, explores the, the moral dimensions of state Songha collaboration. Um, she argues that both uh, organizations such as the Renai Charity Foundation and the state desire to cultivate um, an ethic of civic-mindedness amongst Chinese citizens um, is there, right? Um, so in addition to, for example, using Buddhism or arguing that Buddhism is part of is an intrinsic part of Chinese culture, or using Buddhism as a kind of sub-power um, towards Taiwan or abroad, um, there's also the function of using Buddhism to cultivate this ethic of civic-mindedness um, in its own citizens, right? So what is this project of civic-mindedness that they have in mind? Um, and why would certain Buddhist organizations like the Renai Foundation be interested in cultivating this kind of citizenship um, that aligns with state goals? Yeah, that's a fascinating chapter. I really love uh, that, that work uh, from Susan. She, she has been working in an area that I also care very much about, which is the uh, role of religious organization in the development of philanthropy. Uh, and philanthropy here understood as how uh, the government relied on non-state actors, uh, the private sector, but also religious organization, NGOs, to help people that somehow fall through the cracks of the uh, you know, welfare system of China. So people, for example, who suffer from disability, uh, elderly people who have no children, uh, orphans, uh, people, you know, who live in very, very remote regions. So the government is, you know, trying to reach out to these populations. And sometimes the private sector, I mean, corporate philanthropy is not always uh, that useful. And very often, again, depending on the locations where you end up, uh, you do see uh, local governments cooperating with local religious institution in providing some form of uh, support and relief. Now, in the case of the Renai Foundation that uh, Suzanne looked at, um, she was looking at an association that was, if you like, mirroring uh, one of the most important charity in China, which is the um, the uh, which was established by the Amity Foundation. Uh, it's a Protestant uh, charity that has been established uh, since the beginning of the reform and opening policy. And of course, what facilitated that was the fact that it has connection with North American churches that were considered progressive. Um, so this kind of philanthropy by Christians was always a little bit a thorn in the side of the Communist Party because they felt that, why is it that Chinese religions could not do something like the Christians. And the Renai Foundation is an illustration of an attempt uh, to encourage, and that's not the only one, by the way. There are other ones, uh, like uh, the uh, one in Nanputuo Temple in the southern part of China that has been around for a long time. But the Renai one is interesting because it's located in Beijing. It's located in Beijing, and also it's a former uh, director or, or it, its its founder is uh, Xue Cheng, and Xue Cheng is the former uh, 
a president of the Chinese Buddhist Association, and he's been uh, the last two years uh, in trouble. Uh, and that's uh, another story I can ex- elaborate on later on if you want. But he's been uh, challenged by, by the Communist Party. He's been accused of uh, sexual harassment, and that's a very uh, murky story, and we don't know much about the substance of this. This is all to say that the Renai Foundation, which is associated with the Lungchuan Temple in the suburb of Beijing, uh, is a temple that had really uh, benefited from its location, from its leadership, again, with uh, Master Shui Chang. And that was part of the, if you like, the political structure that brought together the Communist Party and the Buddhist Association of China. So in other words, that was very important that the Renai be seen in in, uh, in Beijing, but also in some other uh, cities where it's active, to be doing some good deeds, right? To, to do some uh, charity and to, to provide some help. Um, but it turns out that the work of Renai, again, is... is not as uh, comprehensive as that of other uh, philanthropic association. Uh, it, it's really uh, a political attempt to, to make sure that Buddhism would um, appear in, in Chinese society as very um, cooperative with the government. Now, another thing that I need to add, and I'm sure my colleagues will interject on that, it's from the other side, right? Why would Buddhists... Uh, lay people and monastic uh, accept to to get involved in charity. Um, when I was in, in Beijing and talking to lay people who were involved in these movements, there's no question. I mean, those people were absolutely sincere uh, in, you know, doing things that is for the good of Chinese society. Um, but at the same time, um, they were painfully aware that they have to uh, do good deeds, but not show up too much, not uh, be too conspicuous in their delivery of charity, because they knew that if they are too successful, the Communist Party might take umbrage. So it's a very, very, uh, if you like, um, narrow option for them. They, They are invited on the one hand to provide charity, and to provide support and relief to people. But at the same time, they cannot be too successful because the Communist Party fears that the more successful they become, the more they can be perceived as a threat to the regime. Yeah, thank you. This is a very fascinating chapter indeed. Um, So part two of the volume, so um, the three chapters that we just kind of discussed really quickly um, covers part one of the volume. And part two of the volume, entitled Revival and Continuity, the monastic tradition and beyond um, shows how Buddhist leaders in contemporary China have been reviving monastic lineages and education, both nationally and also locally. So, for example, Dr. Ji's um, chapter entitled Schooling Dharma Teachers, the Buddhist Academy System and Sangha um, Education shows how the leaders of the Buddhist Association of China have worked to centralize a national curriculum for Sangha education that now also includes courses on political education. Um, at the same time, though, there um, these efforts at centralization have often also been, um, in a way, subverted by powerful regional academies. Um, this is also something that Dr. G points out 
So what are the drives behind these competing revivals of Buddhist monasticism and monastic education? Yes, the Buddhist revival in China is flourishing all over the country because Buddhists have been engaged in interactions on multiple levels of society, from local to uh, national level, uh, and in different forms of organization. Each of these organizations has its own purpose, means, and uh, resources. Sometimes they overlap one another and share the same strategies and objectives, but sometimes they are in competition. As for monastic education, there are two main projects for, for revival. On the one hand, the Buddhist Association of China, especially its central organ in Beijing, has attempted to uh, establish a nationally unified and centrally planned Sangha education system. In the 1980s to the 1990s, the Central Association imposed a system to uh, grade the Buddhist academies uh, based on three levels, uh, primary levels, secondary levels, and higher levels. It proposed unified uh, teaching materials and uh, uh, attempt to raise funds from monasteries and it even checked the, the growth of the number of Buddhist academies as uh, the growth was too rapid for the Central Association to manage efficiently. Obviously, for the Central Buddhist Association, these organizational procedures and policies were rooted in the state ideology of planned economy and centralized governance. For monasteries, however, if they uh, sponsored Buddhist academies to invest in the training of young monks and nuns, their first concern was to create a pool of qualified monastics and build a network of human resources to serve their own monastery, lineage, network, or tradition. They did not see much advantage in the centralized plan of the uh, Buddhist association. So the result is that almost none of the plans proposed by the central association were uh, implemented. According to my statistics, Buddhist academies grew the first, uh, fastest, fastest uh, in the period between uh, 1986 and 2000. However, the teachers within Buddhist academies mostly act uh, autonomously and they did not follow the uh, curriculum in the textbooks suggested by the Central Association. In essence, the recommend, rec recommendations of the Central Association had no actual uh, binding force. Furthermore, the centralized allocation of funds for education did not materialize. Consequently, the association's official agenda with regard to the centralized plan of Sangha education has been a, a spectacular failure. There are two uh, primary drives behind this competing uh, revivals. The first is economic, and the second is political. First, 
local monasteries and regional Buddhist associations have increased in power, in power uh, compared to the central association. After the mid-1990s, due to the increased economic power of local Buddhists and their uh, growing involvement in religious activities, the financial condition of local monasteries improved considerably. As a consequence, the economic independence gained by monasteries has ensured a local dynamic which is not always in tune uh, with the central association's policies. Second, uh, local authorities have increased in power compared to those in the central government who are in charge of the administration of religious affairs as a result of a series of reform that uh, took place in the 1990s. Since the beginning of the 21st century, the main modality to handle religious affairs has became, uh, become uh, territorial management. And that is to say, provincial Buddhist associations, which are often under control of regional Buddhist leaders and a few large monasteries, are able to legally open Buddhist academies as they can get consent from the uh, provincial or even local religious affairs bureau. We know that uh, this consent uh, is not difficult to get because uh, local authorities often search for uh, cooperating with temples in order to develop uh, a cultural projects or tourist industry. So I qualify this uh, process as a, a re-marketization uh, of the Sangha education generated by the double drags of political and economic decentralization in resource control. And another interesting common thread that runs through your chapter, um, but also in Daniela Campbell and also Esther Bianchi's chapters in this part, is that uh, revivals of Buddhist monasticism in the post-Mao period often echo similar attempts uh, in the Republican era, right? So uh, prior to 1949, and uh, things like lineage making seem to be the common concern shared by Buddhists from both periods. Um, so what roles do the Buddhist revival in early 20th century China played in forming Buddhist revivals in the post-Mao period? Buddhism in China has passed through a century of successive ruptures but there are also um, continuities linked to the Buddhist revival of the early 20th century that have survived the communist regime. Um, the Buddhist Academy or Institute for Buddhist Studies that I studied in my uh, chapter is in fact a modern institutional invention that emerged in the 1920s in the context of the Buddhist modernization of the early 20th century. It has a mission to train young monks in a uh, modern westernized school uh, guided by a rationalized uh, uh, curriculums such as such, such as a, a very new a modern uh, model for transmission. And this model for transmission left an influence on Buddhism so durable that it had um, persisted to this day in China. In the period from 1956 to 1980, only one Buddhist academy existed in Beijing. 
But since 1980, more than 50 Buddhist academies have opened, and they have trained thousands of monks and nuns. So the Buddhist academy has a legacy of the Buddhist reform during the Republican era, has offered an important means for Buddhists to revive Buddhism in post-Mao China. And the above-mentioned um, combination of ruptures and continuities have as well influenced uh, the transmission of Buddhist, Buddhist lineages. And our colleagues have uh, demonstrated uh, linkages between the Buddhist revival of the early 20th century and post-Mao uh, Buddhist revival. Daniela Gangbo uh, explored in her chapter how monastic lineages have been revived during the post-Maoist period, focusing on the uh, Chan and the Tiantai traditions. This revival uh, would not have been possible without the foundations laid by two eminent monks of the late Qing and the Republican period. That is to say, uh, Xu Yun of the Chan tradition and uh, Di Xian of the Tiantai tradition. These two eminent monks recreated certain uh, defunct lineages within their traditions so as to uh, re vitalize them. In consequence, the lineages restored, uh, restored uh, after the uh, Cultural Revolution are uh, in reality lineages that had already been uh, reinvented, reinvented several decades earlier. Uh, moreover, uh, Campbell presented documentation that uh, the disciples of Xu Yuan and Di Xian, who fled abroad after 1949, contributed greatly to the reconstruction of the temples that had been destroyed during the uh, Cultural Revolution. Esther Bianchi's chapter also addresses the efforts of Buddhist monastics to uh, re-establish orthodox lineages, but she focuses on the uh, standardization of procedures for monastic ordinations. This issue is extremely important, not only because taking uh, precepts in the correct manner constitutes the highest legitimacy of the Sangha's authority, but also because it um, symbolizes the uh, triumph of the Sangha in surmounting the disruptions of their most secret practices experienced, experienced uh, during the Cultural Revolution. However, uh, Bianchi points out that what is most interesting, Chinese Buddhists did not always observe the ordination procedures in ancient times. In fact, the monastics of post-Mao China adopted the projects created by uh, reform-minded monastics of the Republican period. In summary, all these studies have shown that to a certain degree, uh, the post-Mao Buddhist revival benefited from the revival in the early 20th century. 
Indeed, by placing the current evolution of Buddhism into a wider historical perspective, we now better understand some of its key features. In 2016, with Daniela Kampo and uh, Wang Qiyuan, who is a Chinese colleague at Fudan University, we co-edited a volume in Chinese entitled The Two Buddhist Revival in 20th Century China. The present volume, Buddhism After Mao, confirms our argument in the earlier volume, which is uh, specifically the first revival offers paradigms and resources that continue to support the second revival. Thank you. Yeah, this is really important, this continuity of, of legitimacy making and also lineage making, right? It's also important for the creation or constructions um, in diaspora communities or Chinese Buddhist communities uh, abroad as well. Um, and the last chapter, part two, turns to the tension between local um, but also gendered forms of monasticism and mainstream Buddhist and state urges to centralize monastic education. Um, in this chapter, written um, together by um, Ashiwa Yoshiko and David Wenk, the focus is on the late nuns, uh, or in, in Chinese, they're called taiku, of the Minan region of Fujian, uh, who are basically unordained nuns that live like fully ordained nuns. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about um, these lay nuns and why are they still not officially recognized in contemporary China as a religious category within the practice of Buddhism? These lay nuns, or in Chinese, uh, vegetarian women, are women who have not been ordained as nuns and did not shave their heads. But they uh, conduct themselves in daily life as nuns. They live home to live communally, they are vegetarian, and they do not marry. This is a local tradition that has existed since the late Qing Dynasty in the uh, coastal region of Fujian province, known as Minnan. They are not considered nuns because they do not receive uh, the transmission of orthodox precepts, which can only be granted by the Sangha through an officially conducted ordination ceremony. But since 2007, state authorities in the Minan region have recognized the uh, laymen's as official, an official category of uh, religious professionals. So they now uh, actually have legal status in China, although this recognition is limited to the Minnan region. Even so, for some Orthodox Buddhist uh, clerics, laymen still cannot receive full status in the Sangha, as they like the um, aforementioned institutional identification. However, this does not mean that laymen are excluded by the Sangha. Uh, Ashwa Yusiku and David Wang have shown uh, the same efforts in present China and in the Republican era to Buddhistize laymen's through the transmission of precepts so uh, they may become official members of a certain Buddhist monastic lineage. 
Thank you. Yeah, I found this chapter to be really interesting to read. So so the last part of the book, uh, Reinventing the Dharma, Buddhism in a Changing Society, showcases chapters that explore really creative ways that Buddhist community in contemporary China, especially the more local ones, have interpreted centralized religious uh, regulations. So Dr. Garish Fisher's chapter entitled Places of Their Own, Exploring the Dynamics of Religious Diversity in Public Buddhist Temple Space, highlights the public spaces that exist within Buddhist temples that facilitate diverse popular religious practices and moralistic discourses. Um, So here in this chapter, you argue that bigger and more important Buddhist sites actually help engender more diverse uh, expressions of religiosities than smaller, more private ones. So how is this the case? Thank you very much. Um, in general, in this chapter and in general in this in this section, we're really taking the kind of political and religious observations that we highlighted in the first two parts and applying them to very specific local case studies. Uh, and as Andre was saying earlier, um, really these local situations are not always in line with the central state's policies on religion. And local states have their own agendas. Local Buddhist officials and Buddhist monks and Buddhist leaders have their own agendas. And also the lay people have their own activities and their own agendas. Uh, And there are other temple goers as well. There are also vendors, there are people trying to sell things, trying to make money off local temples. And so you have a really complex and rich dynamic of on-the-ground social and religious uh, phenomena in this section of the book. Uh, And in my chapter in particular, I note that these large public temples like Guangxi and Bailinsu really have uh, this possibility for all kinds of eclectic forms of religious and social interactions. Uh, And there's two reasons for that. One is just their size and the types of activities that they can facilitate. And another is the fact that they're public. So the other temple or the other temple complex that I compare in the chapter, which I call the Mingfa Buddha Hall, although that, that's not its real name, uh, which is in Jilin province, that is a privately funded uh, small temple complex. Uh, and it's entirely constructed around the vi- visions of its lay Buddhist leader. And so the, spatially, architecturally, And in terms of who has the right to control the space, um, it's really pointing towards one vision. And there's very little diversity in that environment, even though it's a private space. And you would think that there was more autonomy, such as from the state or the, the, the Buddhist leadership of the province. And that's to some extent true, but it does not actually facilitate uh, this diversity of visions. Uh, by contrast, uh, Guangxi or Bailin even though they are important temples, uh, they, um, the Guangxi is the headquarters of the National Buddhist Association, 
of Bai Lianzi is a temple of great historic importance. It's also the headquarters of the Hebei uh, Provincial Buddhist Association and the Hebei uh, Buddhist Academy. Um, they also see themselves as public temples with responsibilities to the public. And that was something that the leadership of both temples emphasized to me in my interviews with them. And so therefore, they feel that they can't completely control this space. They don't want to completely control it. Now, obviously, kind of religious activities that would go far against the interests of the state, let's say if someone came there practicing Falun Gong, or someone came advocating uh, Tibetan independence, both of which happened at Guangxi at certain times, they would be very quickly expelled from the temple. But people that engage in other kinds of religious activities, such as devotional worship, or even preaching certain kinds of moral visions that don't conflict with state policies, even though they are not organized by the temple leadership, this is something that the temples feel that to some extent they need to accommodate. And though no one said this to me explicitly, I, I have the feeling that in part, this is a replacement for the diversities of temple and religious practice that would have been present in these areas uh, prior to the communist period. So when we have a rebuilding of temples, and I won't use the word revival, uh, only certain temples are rebuilt. Uh, and so other aspects uh, of the popular or folk religious scene prior to the communist period, a lot of those temples are not revived. So these large public temples also have to take on this function, not just of the revival of institutionalized Buddhism, but also of popular religious practices, and also to uh, act as social spaces in general. So the Bailin Su in, in particular this is a large public space. Some people you just use it as a park, uh, as a as a place to meet, to gather, to you know play go, or just to chat or have some time alone. And, and there aren't a lot of these green public park spaces uh, in in the small uh, township where the temple is located. So the temple also has to fulfill this function as well. Thank you. It's really fascinating um, the the kinds of activities people um, use the temple space for. And um, Dr. Lali Berte, would you like to add something? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I I was fascinated by uh, what uh, Garrett was saying about this. Uh, you know, local um, different movements, and I would like to add to that that it's so frustrating for us sometimes to do research and trying to capture the diversity and the vitality of uh, the life of uh, Buddhist lay people in particular because of so much that is invisible and invisible for pretty good reasons. Uh, as I said before, you know, if, if religious movements, including Buddhism, are becoming too visible, that's something that the state would prefer to limit. Um, and... I'm making this remark on the ground of uh, if, if we look, for example, at the number of Buddhist temples that are recorded in cities like Shanghai or Beijing, right? It's the population of Australia in each of these uh, cities. And the number of temples is about 20-something. But then when you look at the archives of the Beijing government, when the city was 
three to four times less populated. You count them by the hundreds, both Shanghai and Beijing, which suggests that there has been an enormous decline in the physical infrastructure, if you like, of Buddhism in terms of monastery, temples, shrines, etc. I find that hard to believe that despite the Cultural Revolution, uh, there was no uh, revival, if you like, of, of Buddhist activity. It's just that it's emerging in different forms. Um, and in the way that you would see, um, for example, the house churches among Christians, uh, lay people congregate in what is known as a Jushilin, right? The uh, Buddhist groves that are officially uh, registered. But how many, and, and that's a question, I have no answer for that one, but that's a question that I raise. And perhaps Garrett or Jija could also interject on that. To what extent, uh, how many lay Buddhist people simply meet elsewhere in places that are not recorded, not uh, registered by municipal or local governments? Although I uh, <clears throat> imagine it must be very difficult. But it's also the existence, and, and the three of us actually have written about that separately, about the online Buddhism, the activities of uh, lay Buddhists who are meeting on the internet uh, to, to read scriptures, uh, to, you know, to even perform rituals um, in, a, in a virtual world. So that's another expression of Buddhism that is uh, not as palpable as the uh, the temples and other public sites that we can see. Yeah, thank you for your comments. Yeah, later in one of the chapters in, in part three by, by Stefania uh, Trevaknin, she also talks about this online religious practice um, and the space, right, that's online as well. Um, so going back to this last part of the book, um, Huang Weishan's chapter presents with us a case study on the Jing'an Temple in Shanghai and its charismatic abbot, uh, Huiming. So now this is a, a Buddhist temple situated right in the heart of the city of Shanghai in one of the most expensive areas um, of the city and also the country. Um, so it's also the temple featured in the cover image right, of the edit volume. Um, so what is Abbot Huiming's vision for the temple and how has he managed his vision uh, for the temple in the center of one of the fastest growing cities in the world? Yes, thank you. This is a fascinating chapter uh, because a lot of the issues of, of Buddhist restoration have to do with the legality and the economics of space. So the reason why we don't see so many temples being revived, uh, the phenomena that Andre just uh, spoke to, is not entirely or even really mostly for sort of communist ideological reasons. Uh, it is because of economic reasons. Simply speaking, uh, there's a, a, a mentality of the commodification of space in China today, similar to other market-based capitalist economies. Um, so in a city like Shanghai, space is it as a premium. There may be, and there were many, many temples uh, in Shanghai before the communist revolution. And those may have been destroyed or converted to other uses because of the ideal of, of communism. 
but right now they're not being arrived because of the economic agenda of, of the government and private businesses. Uh, you simply can't take valuable land away from other people and restore it for religious use. Um, in the cases where temples are being rebuilt, very often that's to the economic advantage of the local government. One of my new research areas is looking at a book in Jiangsu, uh, looking at a temple, sorry, in Jiangsu province uh, that's being built larger and larger because the local government wants to kind of beautify the land. And having a temple there is seen as part of that beautification. And on its current site is a closed factory. So there's nothing there. It's just ugly. It's an eyesore. And so certainly the government wants to help the temple expand and take over that space. But in the case of the Jing'anse, uh, that's not the case at all. Uh, this is valuable commercial space. And yet in spite of this, Hui Ming, largely from me, his personal charisma, his energy, his drive, his ability to form connections, both within the Buddhist establishment and with Goku government officials, has managed to revive this temple and create a strong space for it uh, in the middle of the city. Partly what he did um, is make deals with local businesses to buy up land, um, which was used which by the temple uh, before the revolution. Um, but Hui Ming argued or, and, and for, for the need to get it back, and he paid for it to come back. Uh, so, the, so the temple was able to expand its area. Uh, he also argued for the relevance of the temple in the city. Uh, so there's a point in, in the chapter where it talks about the commemoration of people that had died in a fire in a, in a nearby building. And so it was easy for the, city, for the city government that the temple fulfilled this important role uh, in the mourning of local residents and that it needed the temple. Um, there's also this game that's played between Hui Ming uh, and the government officials over the question of what is religion and what is culture. And culture is something that, uh, as Andre mentioned and Jija mentioned uh, at the beginning of our talk, uh, the, the country wants to emphasize the revival of its traditional culture. That's part of its nationalist agenda. Uh, and that relates to Buddhism, because Buddhism has been in China for 2,000 years. So um, Huiming would often play against that desire and show how reviving the temple would be part of reviving traditional culture in Shanghai. Um, whereas at the same time, he also kind of struggled with the government to, to, to emphasize the religious side, a lot of the temple's activities, instead of just its cultural side. Yeah, thank you. This is a very fascinating chapter again. Um, so going back to our discussion um, on the internet's uh, religious practices, right, that uh, Dr. Laliberti kind of um, started, the edit volume actually ends with a really fascinating chapter by Stefania uh, Trabatnin on online religious practices in contemporary China, especially focusing on online worship halls found on the websites of Nanputuo Temple in, in Xiamen. Um, what kind of religious services and functions do these online platforms provide and how have they been received? Yeah, this is also an interesting uh, dimension. Uh, as Andre says, and he's quite right, 
a lot of Buddhism takes place online in China today because there are these limited uh, spaces for actual public religious practice. Uh, and so uh, Professor Trevangan's chapter really highlights this. So um, she focuses a lot on the Nampotu uh, temple in Xiamen, uh, which is in Fujian province, which is one of the most well-known Buddhist temples in China today. And it's also a physical site. Uh, it's, there's a large degree of uh, devotional activity at the temple. Uh, but there's also this online platform, uh, and there you can copy sutras, you can light virtual candles, you can make offerings to Buddhist Bodhisattva and other deities, uh, you can uh, recite liturgies uh, all through this online Buddha, Buddha Hall uh, on the Namputua uh, uh, temple website. Um, and uh, Professor Trevanian re relates this to a larger phenomena of the rise of digital Buddhism in China t today. And this is something that the, the state still is not regulating uh, that much. Uh, it is uh, starting to regulate it. And um, uh, Professor Trevanian talks about this in uh, starting from 2018, the government posts a set of new regulations, um, but it's still something that the government is trying to catch up to. Thank you. Um, I guess we can talk about more of the internet's presence um, in our last question. Um, so lastly, in your opinions, uh, what would the future of Buddhism look like in contemporary China, especially in the post-COVID-19 era? Uh, maybe we can ask uh, Dr. Laliberte to answer first. Thank you. That's, <clears throat> that's a most difficult question to answer. Uh, there are so many things that uh, we can't really only speculate about. Um, and especially, apologies, <coughs> in the last few years of the Xi Jinping administration, um, there are many trends that are difficult to decipher. Um, I, I was just listening before we talked about, uh, <coughs> sorry, the changes in the uh, uh, Central Military Commission, for example. So really important political struggles that are happening right now. Um, and the COVID pandemic has, in a way, been an opportunity for China to promote its own mode of governance. And I'm really concerned, actually, that uh, the Communist Party now, as we speak, is um, having a level of confidence in its particular approach, which is based on economic development, uh, which is based on the assertion that its authoritarian model of development is the best way to, um, you know, solve the problems of poverty, uh, solve the problem of prosperity. Um, and therefore, I'm not so sure that it will be uh, having, I would say, a tolerant or positive effect on the growth of religion. What I'm trying to say here is that since the Communist Party, let's not forget, uh, is, is premised on uh, materialist philosophy that really thinks that uh, religion is going to vanish as, as a Chinese society becomes modern uh, and secular. 
And there's little doubt that for most Communist Party cadre, that's the future of their country. And religion is tolerated. Or, and that's important, I, I, I didn't mention that before, but Buddhism, for example, can continue to exist, but not as a religion. Uh, it's seen as the cultural expression of what it is to be Chinese. And you, you, you've seen Xi Jinping himself talking of Buddhism and Taoism in those terms. And Christianity and Islam are still seen by the Communist Party as a religion. They also have the foreignness to them that makes them, you know, I would say, better target. So in other words, I'm, I'm a little bit pessimistic about the Communist Party's attitude towards Buddhism. That being said, of course, uh, we have to uh, look at what people who profess Buddhism as a religion or as a philosophy of life or as a worldview certainly have very different views about that. And the question that will be really important for us to, to look at is to what extent people will be able to live as Buddhists in a context where Let's keep in, you know, this in perspective. Uh, if we accept the most generous uh, surveys about the number or, uh, of people who are self-defined as Buddhists, it still is a minority, a large minority in absolute numbers, but still a minority. Talking about uh, the most, again, the most, uh, if you like, uh, the largest proportion, one of them is... Uh, talking about 18% of the population that will be uh, considered Buddhist. So in other words, how many of the people who identify as Buddhism would feel comfortable to express themselves in the public sphere as Buddhists in a context where most people either are indifferent or sometimes even worse, might be uh, critical or hostile to their expression of religiosity. So... Um, Again, another thing too, um, you know, if China's political regime is changing in decades from now, then Buddhism might uh, experience the kind of, uh, I would say, more, uh, I would say, more prosperous or more um, favorable condition that uh, we are seeing in places like Taiwan or in places where you have many uh, overseas Chinese community like Malaysia, Singapore, and where it's thriving. And so maybe it's, it's uh, a possibility as well. Thank you. And Dr. Fisher, would you like to add something? Certainly. So we're very much in the dark about what's going on with Buddhism in China over the last several months, simply because with COVID, we've been unable to do uh, at least field-based research, which is the sort of research that I do, and a lot of the contributors to the volume also do. So I have had reports over social media and other sources of temples being closed. Uh, because of COVID and because of health concerns. And certainly those health concerns are legitimate. We've seen religious institutions and spaces of worship uh, closed all over the world because of COVID. But then there's a fear that this may be an opportunity for the government to more closely regulate religion 
under the name of health and, and safety. And certainly when popular groups have been restricted in public temple space in the past, such as in the uh, last couple of de decades, um, it has occurred uh, kind of also in the name of general the general health and well-being of the population. So these same kind of words, the same kind of discourse has been used. Uh, what the long-term effect of this, of course, is, is, is very hard to know. And hopefully uh, this health crisis will be over within the next year or so, and we'll be able to go back and do research and, and see what the impact actually has been. Thank you. And Dr. G, would you like to add your comments? Well, it would be important for a sociologist to predict the future. It is not difficult to deduce that uh, the monastic economy uh, has been hit hard by the ongoing COVID-19 crisis, since many ritual services and uh, pilgrims can uh, not continue as usual. However, this is a temporary situation. I totally agree with my colleagues here that the most serious challenge uh, is the communist regime, uh, especially the tighter control of Xi Jinping's reign over society. In the past few years, we have observed a clear political suppression of religious vigor, like economy, cultural, media, research in social sciences, and many other aspects of public life. Buddhism is starting to lose momentum. Thank you. Yeah, I guess um, there's a lot of things that, like uh, Dr. G said, it's very difficult to predict. Uh, we do have one last question um, for you before we let you go. Um, so can you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been working on recently, your next, uh, your current and next projects, uh, maybe individually? Um, so let's go back to the same order. So Dr. Laliberte. Well, thank you. Um, luckily, uh, I'm now at the end of a research project that my two colleagues uh, know very well. Uh, it started, I guess, 15 years ago. <laughs> I'm interested in Buddhist philanthropy uh, in China, but also in Taiwan and uh, Singapore, but mostly in China. Um, so that's a project that I'm finishing now. And it's part of a broader question that never stopped to interest me, which is how religious institutions, not only just Buddhist, but also other uh, religious institutions, are contributing to shape the evolution of the welfare state. There's a lot of literature on that topic in uh, about Western European countries, how the church, whether Catholic or Protestant churches, have influenced the, the growth of the welfare state in Germany, France, etc., but there's very little written about that on East Asia. And that's what I would like to focus my energies on for the next few years. Um, so I would like to investigate with uh, colleagues uh, how Buddhism, but also how uh, churches, uh, new religious movements have contributed or, or have hindered the development of uh, the welfare states in Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, and uh, possibly also uh, in other societies where the welfare state is not as developed, like uh, the Philippines and Indonesia. Um, 
I really think it, it's an issue uh, that really matters because um, very often religious institutions, especially in countries uh, like the last three ones, um, which have not comprehensive uh, welfare state, very often rely on the uh, human resource uh, and the experience and the tradition of different religious institutions uh, to provide help to people who face all sorts of difficulties, economic difficulties, but also people who have been uh, born in totally unfortunate uh, conditions. And also, not to, not to forget, uh, sometimes uh, religious institutions have been key actors in supporting or, or, or helping governments in the delivery of relief in case of uh, typhoons, storms, earthquakes, etc. So it's a fascinating issue uh, to look at. Now you probably have guessed by now that I, I'm not going to research that issue in China. Uh, I'm a Canadian. Um, and have personal reason to be quite upset by the nature of our relations. Um, and it, it's affecting many Canadian scholars personally. We're a little bit worried. Um, I do hope that, you know, that's not, it's not a comment about the long term. In the long term, I would love to work with my Chinese colleagues in China uh, I just think that now we're going through a rough patch with the Xi Jinping administration. Thank you, doctor. Yes, uh, there's a lot of issues at hand that could be not very helpful for, for scholars, both in, the, in Canada and also in the United States. But yeah, that's a very um, important uh, project you're working on, uh, I think, especially in this age of climate change, right, with these concurrent um, natural disasters. Um, and Dr. Fisher, would you like to tell us something about your current projects? Yes, thank you. Um, so I'm currently working on uh, a book on uh, temple construction and the politics around a temple, uh, getting temples revived and reconstructed. Um, and this is a project that I've been working on over the last 10 years and also very, very much related to our um, efforts of working together um, on this volume and, and uh, having a research support also. Um, so what I'm looking at is, first of all, the kind of process politically by which temples are being rebuilt, uh, kind of very similar to what uh, Hui Huang's chapter is talking about in the case of Jinansu, but uh, using other temple sites. So uh, I'm shadowing a monk from uh, Beijing who is trying to rebuild a temple in Shandong province and has, as yet, is unsuccessful and keeps being thwarted by these various changes in government policies, but nonetheless uh, is trying to build relationships with local officials, with lay patrons, uh, and with a host of other actors to make this temple building idea a reality. Um, I'm also looking at uh, successful temples that have been rebuilt uh, in the post-Mao period, what led to their success, uh, and also the kinds of social relationships uh, that are possible within temple spaces, um, both through the process of rebuilding temples uh, and through with the actual finished product of the temples themselves, um, and how, how temple spaces in a secular society um, are on the one hand kind of cut off from, uh, from mainstream society, are contained within these spaces uh, and temples uh, as well as other religious sites kind of function 
uh, from the state's point of view to contain religion and, and prevent it from spreading outside and, and influencing secular life. But on the other hand, this also means that temple spaces provide an opportunity for uh, all kinds of persons, be it monastics or laypersons or other temple goers, to engage in very different values and very different kinds of social relationships that are not really possible in this kind of secular materialist world outside of the temple. And some of those directly relate to religious cultivation, but some of those also relate to other issues, such as experimenting with alternative gender roles, uh, with alternative visions for society and for personal growth uh, that, that are not tied to economic development, uh, that are questioning of the family structure. Um, and so kind of uh, that, that's really my project now, which I'm hoping to, to complete as a monograph within the next two years. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds like a really exciting project, too. And, and Dr. G, um, what are you working on at the moment? I continue to work on Buddhism in modern and contemporary China, uh, focusing on issues such as uh, the globalization of Buddhism, new Buddhist movements, uh, both in the PRC and in Taiwan, and uh, various expressions of Buddhist modernity. Currently, I'm working on a special issue, special issue uh, regarding the research methodology employed in the studies of modern Chinese Buddhism with some young scholars, and uh, a collective volume on the recent evolution of Buddhism since 2000, especially since the beginning of Xi Jinping's so-called New Era. And as a director of the CEIB, the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies on Buddhism, I work closely with my uh, colleagues from various uh, French institutions to uh, promote historical, uh, philological, and social scientific studies of Buddhism. Thank you. Yeah, these are all really uh, exciting projects. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be looking forward to reading more and learning more about your um, upcoming projects as well. Um, so I think I've taken up a lot of your time already. So thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show with us today and talking about this really exciting new addition to study Buddhism in contemporary China. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. This was really a pleasure to, uh, again, uh, see and interact with my colleagues and friends and to uh, answer your questions. It was really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. All right. So until next time, bye-bye. Take care.